What a privilege we have week after week after week to sing such wonderful songs, songs that are biblically solid and God-honoring and uh, easy for corporation, corporations, congregations to, uh, to learn and to sing. I'm so grateful for that. Well, as you know, we are in a brief uh, two-Sunday topical study. This has not been expositional per se the last week or so, but a topical study of one of the most important subjects we could ever entertain, and that is prayer. This excursion for two weeks into the doctrine of prayer was prompted by 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 17, this short verse that says, pray without ceasing, pray without ceasing. Now, as we noticed last week, this is promoting an attitude of prayer that we continually maintain just throughout the day, in other words, so that our daily schedules become peppered, as it were, with prayer, even in the privacy of our hearts. From that discussion of 1 Thessalonians 5.17, we then moved into a look at the foundational reason that we can approach God. We are sinful people. God is a holy God. We have no right on our own to come into God's presence. We must have a mediator that brings us into God's presence, and we do that mediator. The only mediator is Jesus. Now, one implication of this that I shared with you last time is that God has nowhere promised to respond to the prayers of unbelievers. So to pray with confidence. A person must be a genuine follower of Christ. And we concluded our study of prayer last week with a look at the kinds of hearts then that are motivated to pray. Let me quickly summarize that section. Here are the types of hearts we looked at that are moved to prayer. A humble heart will pray. That humility is expressed in our total dependency on the Lord and our desire for God's glory. Grateful hearts are prompted to pray. They are grateful for God's character and His many blessings. A burdened heart will certainly pray. We're burdened over our own sin and guilt and burdened over the lost people we know and burdened over the state of the world. An eager heart will be moved to pray regularly, an eagerness for fellowship with God, which is also what prayer is, an eagerness to grow spiritually, an eagerness to be used by God, to participate with Him in the things that He does. Prayer accomplishes that. And certainly, a needy heart is motivated to pray. We have so many spiritual and practical needs. So in summary, last week, we looked at then the foundation of prayer, the motivations of prayer. Today, our next step is to look at the manner of prayer. That second point was about what prompts us to pray, moves us to pray. The list we're going to go through now emphasizes how we go about praying. At least from this standpoint, I want to talk about the traits that should mark the spirit in which we pray, in other words. And granted, there's a connection with some of the thoughts in this list to the very things that we've discussed that motivates us to pray. So, But yet, these are things that must be maintained as we pray. Here's the first one. We need to habitually and continuously pray in a spirit of reverence, reverence. On one hand, the Lord is our closest friend, but He is not our buddy. 
We should never think of him that way, speak to him that way. God is infinitely exalted. He is transcendent and gloriously majestic. So yes, we can honestly and openly come to him and speak to him, but still we should never lose a reverential attitude toward him. If you study the prayers in the Bible, you'll see that those prayers are characterized that way by a spirit of presence. Uh, reverence, including the Lord's Prayer, there is that statement in Matthew 6, 9, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. It's hallowed, not hollow. Hallowed is not a very uh, contemporary term at all. The word hallowed means to be greatly revered. It means to be honored. So it's a word to honor the Lord. Honored be your name. You are worthy of honor. So there's our example. We should maintain that kind of spirit of reverence as we pray, even as we call Him our Father. Here's another one. Pray with a spirit of earnestness. And by the way, there are 11 of these, just so you'll know. Pray with a spirit of earnestness. Jesus prayed that way with earnestness. He prayed with sincerity. He prayed with intensity. Hebrews 5, 7, Jesus offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears. We especially think of his praying in the Garden of Gethsemane that way. The point is, it doesn't need to be loud or with tears, but the point is we must guard our hearts from becoming stale so that we aren't just uttering words to the Lord in some sort of rote manner when our hearts are not even engaged. Now, there's a caution here. We shouldn't go to some extreme of trying to conjure up, you know, some sort of artificial passion or thinking that somehow our emotion is going to manipulate God in some way to increase the chances that we'll get what we're asking for. No. Earnestness in prayer, emotional involvement in prayer should never be fate. God cannot be fooled. But we can seek His help with this. To stir us up. Lord, stir my heart up with passion. We'll have this as we see the needs of a hurting and dying world around us. See the world as they really are. See the world the way God sees it. It'll be more natural for us then to pray with this earnest emotional involvement. Third, we should pray with a spirit of in a spirit of humility. A humble heart is prompted to pray, but we don't lose that spirit of humility in prayer because the opposite, pride, is totally inappropriate in prayer. Christ commented on the Pharisees, called them hypocrites in Matthew 6. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, you know, so loudly so that people will see them and hear them, drawing attention to self. That's pride, not humility. We have humility, the necessary humility for effective prayer when we begin to ponder our own insignificance, when we have a sense of our own uncleanness in the sight of God as sinners. I think of Isaiah when I think of that sense of uncleanness when he had that great vision of the Lord in Isaiah chapter 6 and he he realizes God is sovereign and God is holy. And so he, he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live among people that are like that. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This kind of humble attitude is crucial for prayer, especially when we're praying in the midst of trials that we're experiencing. Many people get angry at God 
when life doesn't turn out the way they want, they avoid God, their, their prayers aren't answered the way they want, so they're angry. That's pride. It's God's grace that enables us in humility to think the way that Job was thinking when he said those wonderful words in Job 121, naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return there. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's an example of that spirit of humility that ought to characterize our praying. And that humility is definitely connected to the next one on the list. We need to pray in a spirit of submission. In a spirit of submission. A spirit that's captured in the kinds of words that we could pray like these, you know, here, here's what I'm asking, Lord. Here's my request. But ultimately, your will be done. That's the way Jesus prayed in the garden. He conveys a willingness to submit to whatever God does and whatever God doesn't do. That's very different than the praying that James warns us against. In James 4.3, you ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you spend it on your own pleasures. It's just all about you. Listen, we've got to remember God has the right and He has the power to do with us as He sees best. It's the kind of humility captured in that statement in 1 Samuel 3. It's the Lord. Let Him do what seems good to Him. That's who He is. He's Yahweh. I want to press on this some more because there's, there's a related issue to the, to the spirit of submission, and it's what Scripture tells us to do to seek to pray according to God's will. Like in 1 John 5, 14, if we ask anything and according to His will, He hears us. The question is, though, how do we know what God's will is so we know how to pray? Well, to understand how this connects to pray and what it means to pray according to the will of God, we need to understand the difference in two aspects of God's will. There is His secret will and there is His revealed will. Deuteronomy 29, 29 refers to both sides of that. The secret things belong to the Lord, our God. But the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever. That we may observe all the words of this law, the word of God, the law of God. That's the revealed will of God. The things that are secret, you can't ask, well, what are they? Well, they're the secret things of God. They're the things that God has decreed to do, and He decreed those things in His own eternal mind in eternity past. We can't know those aspects of God's will until they unfold in real time in God's providence. And these things that are His secret will, they are things that will happen no matter what. So to pray according to God's will, I submit to you, does not refer to praying that God, your secret will to come to pass. His secret will is guaranteed to come to pass. Concerning His secret will, it's the spirit of submission that we need to maintain. We acknowledge to God that whatever it is He's decreed, that's ultimately that is what we want. However, we can seek to pray more specifically in line with those things that God has revealed. And those are the things found in Scripture. In the Lord's Prayer, it even says in Matthew 6, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I submit to you that that's 
praying that people on earth would obey God's revealed will. That people would learn and embrace and obey God's commands. So if something's been revealed, we don't add this phrase to that, if it is your will. If he's revealed it, it is his will. There's a good example of that in James 1. We're told that we can ask for wisdom, and it's in the context of trials. We need to pray for that. We need to seek wisdom for decision-making, especially in the midst of trials. But we don't have to wonder whether it's God's will. We don't pray for wisdom and say, Lord, give me wisdom in this trial if it's your will, because he tells it is. James 1, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. It will be given to him. We know what God's will is because he's revealed it. So when we pray, we can and should pray for things that we know line up with and match God's timeless moral will in Scripture. So that obviously means knowledge of Scripture is a tremendous help in prayer. The regular reading of God's Word, the regular studying of God's Word and hearing the preaching of God's Word cultivated over many years of a Christian's life. It, it increases the depth of our praying, the power and wisdom of our prayers. Yet, obviously, there are many situations in life that he has not revealed something about. We don't know what his will is. There's no promise or command in Scripture. Like whether it's God's will to purchase a particular item, a car or something. Or whether it's God's will to marry a particular person or to get the job we've applied for, and the list goes on and on and on. In all those cases, we certainly want to bring to bear whatever scriptural principles might apply to our thinking about those things. But beyond that, that's where we pray with that spirit of submission. We make our request, but we pray agreeing that whatever God's secret, determined, sovereign will is, is what's best. We could articulate it in the Lord to the Lord in so many ways, but we could make a request and we could say, I, I don't know what your will is. If I'm wrong in this, if this is not pleasing to you, then Lord, I submit to what you determine is what's best. Or just more simply, your will be done. So the exception to that is when Scripture tells us what his will is. It gives a clear command. So praying according to the will of God is connected to the spirit of commission. So is this. There's another connected thought here. It's the idea of praying in Jesus' name. We're told to do that in Scripture. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do. Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Let me talk about that for a moment. This does not simply mean making sure you add the phrase, in Jesus' name, after every prayer. I mean, we're scared about that sometimes. I've got to make sure I say that. Oh, I forgot to say, in Jesus' name. As if it's some kind of magical formula, you know, that gives power to our prayers. You've got to look at all the prayers recorded in Scripture. Not a single one has the phrase, in Jesus' name, at the end of them. Interesting. Let's talk about it. What does it mean? Well, first of all, to come in the name of someone, that just means, in general terms, that that person has authorized us to come under their authority. So connected to praying in Jesus' name, it's understanding as you pray that Jesus is the one who has authorized our ability to pray. 
And second, in a broad sense, the name of a person, especially in the ancient world when this was written, the name represented the person himself or herself. So praying in Jesus' name is praying in a way that's consistent with who he is, is consistent with his character. We're praying for his glory, for his sake, we say sometimes. We're praying for the purposes that are related to his mission. So in that sense, to pray in Jesus' name is really connected to the idea of praying according to his will. So the question is, do we need to add the phrase in Jesus' name to the end of our prayers? It's not biblically required. It's certainly not wrong either. If we understand what's meant by it. And it does seem to be our habit, and that's fine. We just don't want to start thinking or to cause other people to think that somehow this is a magical formula that makes the prayer more effective. Adds a little oomph to it at the end. When you get the concept of it, you realize there's many ways to express it. You could pray like this, Father, we come to you to make these requests. We come on the authority of the Lord Jesus. Here's the request, amen. Same idea. We could pray, Father, Father, we don't come on our own merits. We come on the merits of your Son. He's invited us to come before you. Here's our request. Father, we have made these requests to you, and we thank you that you have forgiven our sins, and you've given us access to your throne to make those very requests we've just made by, by the reality of Jesus, your Son. Thank you. Amen. Listen, the bottom line is, so long as our hearts continually realize that it is our Savior who enables us to pray to the Father, it doesn't matter whether the phrase is added or not. The bigger issue is our ultimate desire in our heart for the Lord's will to be done and not our own. The ultimate desire for Jesus' purposes to be accomplished and not just our own. So we pray in that spirit of submission. Here's the next one. Pray in a spirit of thankfulness. Thankfulness. Thanksgiving is an essential element in our prayers. Philippians 4, 6 says, make our requests known, but with thanksgiving. Colossians 4 even says it's a way to keep alert in prayer, our thanksgiving. But here again, just like with earnestness, I'm not talking about some sterile rote words of thanks. Instead, this gratitude ought to just truly reflect the thankfulness that's in our hearts for all of God's blessings. Our gratitude for God what He does, who He is, and what He does in all circumstances, in every event of life that He allows to come our way. We thank You, Lord, for who You are and what You do. Here's another one. Pray in a spirit of confession. Now, obviously, Scripture prioritizes obedience to God in our lives, but our obedience to God is never perfect in this life. We continually, therefore, depend on His forgiveness. And because of that, confession of sin is a primary element in effective praying. That's found in the Lord's model prayer as well, Matthew 6, 12. And forgive us our debts, that means sins, or our transgressions, as we also have forgiven our debtors, those who have transgressed and sinned against us. We need God's forgiveness, but what kind of forgiveness are we asking for? 
Well, if we're saved, it's not His judicial forgiveness. That was given to us at the moment that we expressed saving faith in Christ. God stopped being our judge, and He began relating to us as our Father. Instead, we confess our sins because it's necessary for fatherly forgiveness. In other words, for God to restore that sense of intimacy with Him. And that intimacy is hindered when we sin. In a sense, we're praying for the joy of our salvation to return, which is the way David put it in Psalm 51. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. The fact is, until sin is forgiven in that sense and the relationship restored and the joy restored, prayer will be difficult. The bottom line is, anything in our lives that displeases the Lord will be a hindrance to our prayer. So many verses about that. Psalm 66, if I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Psalm 28, he who turns away his ear from listening to the law, which means obeying the word, even his prayer is an abomination. Isaiah 59, your sins have hidden his face from you, so he does not hear. I know the husbands were thinking, please don't list this one. 1 Peter 3, you husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Honor her. Otherwise, your prayers are hindered because it's sin. Now, I'm not proposing that we have to be sinless for God to hear and answer our prayers, yet we still must not neglect the biblical emphasis on personal holiness of life. Prayer and holy living go together. So the more obedient we are in life, the more effective our prayers will be. But we do fail. So not only does prayer and holy living go together, prayer and confession go together. We're to confess all known sin to the Lord and ask for His fatherly forgiveness. And obviously there are sins that we have forgotten about or not even aware of. It's appropriate to then pray like David did in Psalm 19. Equip me of hidden faults. Lord, you know more about my sin than I do. Pray then in a spirit of confession. Next, pray in a spirit of forgiveness. In a spirit of forgiveness. Now I'm referring to our forgiveness of other people. There's a connection between that and effectiveness in our prayers. The Lord's Prayer again, Matthew 6, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who sinned against us. Mark 11, whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father who's in heaven will also forgive you. I mean, that's pretty sobering. Because here's what that means. When we ask for God's fatherly forgiveness of our sins, we're actually asking Him to do it in the same way that we, we do it for other people. So if there are those people that we have not forgiven when we pray, and confess our sins and ask for His forgiveness, God's forgiveness, then we're just asking Him not to restore a right relationship with us because we've refused to do that for somebody else. Matthew 6, 14 to 15, If you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Restoring the intimacy and the joy. Like I said, that's sobering. Pray in a spirit of forgiveness. Next, we're told to pray in a a spirit of belief. 
belief. Faith. But believing what? Faith in what? Well, we must certainly start with this. If we're going to pray to God, we must have a basic belief that God hears and God answers our prayers, and we must have faith that He will certainly answer them in a way that is consistent with His own wise purposes and our greatest good. We pray believing that. Matthew 20 thing, all things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. Mark 11, all things for which you ask, believe that you've received them and they'll be granted to you. But if there's doubting about the character of God and doubting about His wisdom and His will, James 1, 6, ask, ask in faith without doubting. If we doubt, we're not asking in the spirit of belief. It's clear in Scripture that we're to pray with faith. And ultimately, this faith means trust in God. I'm convinced of all the attributes of God as they're laid out in Scripture that make up His excellent character. Kind of like earnestness, though, and some of these others, I'm not saying we should try to work up this kind of faith with some sort of great emotional effort. I'm just going to believe, 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 believe. We can't force this on ourselves, even by saying words that we don't really believe. I could put it this way, this kind of biblical faith is not some sort of wishful thinking. Or as we like to say it sometimes, this is not faith in our faith. I'm just going to believe more in my belief and somehow get it strong enough to impact God. No, it's trust in a person. God Himself, based on the fact that we take Him at His word, we believe what He said. This trust in God is genuine biblical faith, and we pray in the spirit of that. Next, pray in a spirit of boldness. Hebrews 4 tells us to draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. You could translate that boldness. And the confidence includes the fact, and listen to this, we should not hesitate to ask boldly for large things. I ponder Ephesians 3.20 a lot. God's able to do far more abundantly beyond all we could ask or think. I love the words to this hymn we sing. John Newton wrote it. We've sung it a few times. Come, my soul, with every care. One of the stanzas, you're coming to a king. Large petitions would you bring. For his grace and power are such, none can ever task too much. I mean, we're almost afraid to ask what's really on our hearts. So we minimize it. Lord, maybe if possible, if you could just a little bit of, you know. Pray boldly. People might say, yeah, but isn't that presumption? I don't want to be guilty of that. That is a sin. Prayer is presumptuous if it's offered in faith in anything other than God Himself and His promises. That's presumption. It's faith in our faith. Or it's praying without a concern for holiness in our life. I'm going to live the way I want, but still ask God to do what I want. Yeah, that's presumption. That's a potential pitfall. But don't let that possibility squelch your boldness. William Carey is attributed to this famous statement. He's called the father of modern missions, missionary to India. It's whom I was named after. My first name is William. My mother named me after this man. He said this, expect great things. Attempt great 
things. We could reword it then. Expect great things. Pray great things. Pray in a spirit of boldness. Next, pray with a spirit of persistence. You're going, okay, I see how you can get 11 in here. He's going pretty fast. Pray with, in a spirit of persistence. There's an older word for that, importunity. We don't say that one anymore. Jesus taught that this was appropriate. He did it in a couple of parables in Luke 11, the parable of the friend in need. And then the, in Luke 18, there's the parable of the relentless widow, we call her, that kept asking. And we have a, a loving, caring, heavenly Father that we're going to. So we can be persistent with Him. And this persistence includes the reality that when we're earnestly seeking God for an answer to something specific, we may very well, in fact, over time, repeat the same request many, many times. And that is fine. Paul did it. About his thorn with the flesh, 2 Corinthians 12, he asked at least three times. Jesus did it asking the Father several times to remove this cup of suffering from him. He said, I love the way Mark 14 puts it. Again, Jesus went away and prayed, saying the same words. That's okay. So a clarification is in order. Persistence like this is not the same thing as something that Jesus forbids in another verse. Matthew 6, 7, when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. Earnest repetition in prayer for a deeply felt need and earnest repetition, earnest persistence, those are biblical. It doesn't violate what Jesus said. The last one is this, pray in a spirit of patience, of waiting. Waiting. We're to pray, but... We're also encouraged to wait patiently on God. Psalm 27, wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. Psalm 38, I hope in you, O Lord. Same thing. You will answer, O Lord, my God. Psalm 130, I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait. In His word do I hope. We hate waiting, though, right? We don't like waiting in lines. I certainly detest waiting at a traffic circle for people who do not understand how traffic circles work. I've come to believe there needs to be a separate driving test for traffic circles so that people stop stopping at the traffic circles. Separate issue, separate sermon on that maybe. To wait in the biblical sense is to wait trusting on God. You know what happens while we patiently wait? More than one thing could happen. We may find that while we wait, God begins to work on our desires and He changes them. What we're wanting to pray for. Or He gives us additional insight into the situation that we're praying about. And so that impacts how we pray. Or... He brings some passage of Scripture to mind that could be brought to bear on this circumstance and that enables us to pray more effectively. 
Or just while we wait, he, he increases and grows our faith so that we're able to pray more with a spirit of submission and more with boldness and confidence. But no doubt there will be times when it is appearing that a prayer is going unanswered. One of the reasons is because of God's secret will. Many of the events he's decreed in his secret will have to come to pass before this thing that he's decreed. So we trust him. It's also due to the fact that we just don't always pray according to God's will. I mean, we think one solution is best, but God has a better plan. And at times, he fulfills his purpose even through suffering and hardship in our lives. Sometimes we wait and wait, and then all of a sudden, a long-awaited answer suddenly happens. And yet, we can wait and wait, and our prayers will remain unanswered for the entire length of our lives on earth. It's even possible that God may answer those prayers after we die. We don't know. Other times he will not, regardless. When prayer remains unanswered, we continue to pray, we continue to wait on the Lord, and we continue to trust him. All of those are important, just the spirit of our prayer as we pray, but I want to close with something more specific, and that is the request of prayer. Here's just a few items, broad categories, really, that we should consistently pray for. One is, pray for this, illumination of the Word in your heart. Ask the Lord to open your eyes to the truth and the glory of His Word. We find that in Psalm 119, for example, verse 18. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. He has to do that. Verse 27, make me understand the way of your precepts. And Paul prayed that way for the people he ministered to, like in Ephesus. He prayed that God, the Father of glory, would give them a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. He says in verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. And these were saved people. But they needed further illumination. So do we. Pray for this as well. Pray for our own spiritual growth. By the way, there's seven of these. Pray for our own spiritual growth. And by the way, you know, all these little PowerPoint things, they're all on the website. So just remember that. I don't know how you get to them, but they're there. Our own spiritual growth. In a word, that's our sanctification. Again, Psalm 119, make me walk in the path of your commandments. I mean, I have to pray that way. Not just help me. I need more help than that. Make me. Incline my heart to your testimonies. And the negative side of it, turn my eyes away from sin and looking at vanity in the world. So you pray that. Pray that God will increase your love for obedience and holiness. Pray like the psalmist did. Pray that God will make you abide in his word. He said we need to pray for illumination of the word, but this third one is pray for the proclamation of the word, proclamation of the truth. Pray that the word of God would have impact. 2 Thessalonians 3.1, Paul says, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified. There's some other issues related to this, though. 
not just pray for the proclamation itself, but pray for the proclaimers, the preachers who are proclaiming. Pray that the Spirit would enable me and your elders to preach with accuracy and clarity and boldness. Like Ephesians 6, Paul says, Pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. Verse 20, that I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. We need your prayers for that. In fact, while we're on the proclaimers, pray for this, pray for more proclaimers. Matthew 9, Jesus said, beseech the Lord of the harvest. That means pray. To send out workers. We need more. Even pray that God would call preachers and missionaries from our own congregation. We've had such a joy of sending out a handful along the way. We want to do more. In fact, I hope you're sitting down for this. Pray that God would call one or more of your own children to go. Parents, and if God does, send them out gladly with your blessing. Pray for the proclamation. Next, pray for the salvation of the lost. Obviously, that's a burden for us, especially when we consider the hardness of men's hearts. I mean, you can easily slip into thinking this way, just wonder. I mean, the world is so bad. Can anyone be saved anymore? And we can despair, especially over loved ones who seem a million miles from the Lord and His Word. I take comfort in Mark 10. With people, it's impossible. But all things are possible with God. He saved a blaspheming, prideful hater of Jesus named Saul and turned him into the apostle that's written many of the verses we've read today. Definitely pray for our needs, and we have so many needs, physical needs. I mean, we pray, pray for your health, pray for your finances, pray for your housing needs, pray for your car needs, pray for physical protection in your life, and so forth. When it comes to spiritual needs, pray for the direction you need in life. Pray for that wisdom in trials that we're told to pray for. Pray for your own boldness in proclaiming the truth where you work and in your neighborhood and to your family. I pray this for myself. You pray it for yourself. Pray for spiritual protection from Satan and all his devices. Corey Tim Tim Boom said this, any concern too small to be turned into a prayer, you know, it's too small to be made into a burden. Pray for this, definitely divine intervention in our government. We pray for that frequently. Paul makes it clear that we should do that, especially in our corporate gatherings, 1 Timothy 2. I urge entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings to be made on behalf of all men. And when I say all, I mean the governors and the presidents and the people in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. We pray for it corporately. You should pray for that individually as well. It is obvious our country is suffering from the massive wickedness that pervades our culture. And it also seems we have very few people of integrity to lead our government through this chaos. We need divine intervention to raise up new leaders Divine intervention to bring many of those already in place, to bring them to repentance so they would seek the Lord, bring them to a place of loving God's truth. 
Only God can do that. And lastly, pray for the health of our church. So many things you could pray for. Pray that we'll grow in the depth of understanding of Scripture. Pray that we'll grow in our unity and our love for one another in this body so there'll be no divisiveness. Pray that we'll, we'll be growing in our holiness and our love of obedience. Pray that we'll grow in what it means to foster an atmosphere of discipleship here where it's natural for believers to sharpen other believers and to speak truth to one another in love. Pray that we'll grow in our outreach. Pray for the protection of the church leaders here and our wisdom. One more I certainly sought of, thought of. Pray for our church's finances. Let me challenge you with something. Pray that God would supply the entire amount we need for this new building. Why not? I mean, he owns it all. It's just a matter of redirecting it. I don't care if it falls off a bag off of somebody's truck out here into our yard, you know. He can answer it any way he wants. But pray for that. Be bold. God can do it. You might be hearing that and go, you know what? I want to do it today. How much do you need? Come talk to me. If nothing else, through this brief topical study and believe I edited out more than what I told you. We should conclude that prayer is absolutely crucial to our walk with Christ. Martin Luther put it this way, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. And yet how we neglect it. Just one final practical suggestion I'll leave you with. I think it helps sometimes to have a practical template to follow in prayer. I'll give you what I follow. Not so much in my daily peppering my schedule with individual thoughts and confessions and things like that. Any given time of the day, I might be doing A, C, T, or S, or in a different order. But when I have more organized and strategic times of prayer, I, I actually am thinking of this old, old acronym. A stands for adoration. It's a time of praise, praising the Lord. Lord, we honor you. You're worthy of our praise and worship. You are a holy, righteous God, majestic in all your ways. Lord, I'm not like that. I'm weak and I'm frail and I'm sinful. And even these things I struggle with regularly, I, I confess it again to you. But I'm so thankful, Lord. So thankful that you're a saving, merciful, gracious God as well. So thankful for your plan of redemption. So thankful as I look around. I'm thankful for my family. I'm thankful for the things that you've given me to enjoy in life. Thankful for this church. Thankful for your patience. But here are my requests, Lord, the supplication. Again, you can do them in different orders, not that. But I think it helps sometimes to have a little roadmap because we can be so burdened about something that we just sit there and we don't even know what to say. You can always go back to this. It's not a rosary bead that you slide over. Just a template, something practical to flesh out our prayers. Let's pray now.
Father, we're so grateful that you are a saving God, that you have condescended to us through your Son to provide a way that we can know you as our Father. Thank you that you hear our prayers. Thank you that you're always faithful, even when we are faithless. And we, we confess, Lord, that even though you are that refuge and, and fortress that we read in the Psalms earlier, we forget that and we live in moments of time with great anxiety and fear. We confess that for the sin that it is. We confess our prayerlessness. We confess that we live as if we've forgotten how dependent we are on you. So stir us up to prayer, Lord. Thank you that you've forgiven us of all of our sin, but we don't want to stay where we are. Stir us up that we might be known as people of prayer. For your glory and our good, we ask all these things. We ask desiring to align ourselves with your purposes and your mission. And we ask knowing that it's only because of Jesus that we can even call you our Father. For his sake, we do pray.